Hello, beloved community of Lakeview Church. I am so honored to be with you here today, even if only in spirit and somewhat, uh, somewhat limited by my recovery from an unexpected appendix surgery. Grace and peace be with you in the name of our brother and savior, Jesus Christ. I'd like to begin today by listening to his words from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. I'm reading from the New International Version. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. As I understand it, in your January series, you've been talking about following Jesus in a polarized world, about the prophetic witness of Christian unity without uniformity in contentious and difficult times. Jesus' words here commend his followers to a different way, a kind of contrast that transcends easy divisions between us and them. My task is to invite us into practices that help us lean into this way of Jesus. But I'm going to be honest that at least for me, Jesus' words here are not easy words. On the one hand, they make me feel uncomfortable because I feel squeamish about even the thought of having an enemy. It doesn't seem polite. I don't know about you, but I don't even, I don't like the word enemy. I'd like to believe that we can transcend the very vocabulary. On the other hand, as much as I don't like the language of having an enemy, I also find Jesus teaching here difficult because I am extremely good at righteous indignation. A few weeks ago, I was struck by this section of Psalm 119, reading verses 137 through 139. You are righteous, Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. In the New Living Translation, it's, I am overwhelmed with indignation, for my enemies have disregarded your words. I identify with the psalmist here. It comes with my personality, I think. I'm the oldest child in my family. I'm the oldest daughter. I was raised in Christian legalism. Righteous indignation feels good because it puts me on the side of rightness and it revels in my superiority. For a little while, it overrides the constant nagging inner critic that I'm never quite good enough. But righteous indignation also isolates me. It builds a blockade between me and the person or group I'm feeling indignant against instead of building a bridge. It stops my curiosity. So while I don't want to admit to having an enemy per se, I'm pretty comfortable with feeling superior to them. I suspect I'm not entirely alone in this. Now I want to be very clear about something. There is absolutely room for righteous indignation in our faith. God's anger burns against injustice and abuse. 
I've been reading Melissa Flora Bixler's excellent book, How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work for Peace. And she writes compellingly about how the really violent Psalms remind us that reasonable dialogue and empathy won't be able to solve massive structural problems and gross injustice. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Our truest enemies are these powers and principalities, systems and structures that damage and destroy, and sometimes truly wicked people who use their power to harm others within those systems. Flora Bixler writes of how the church is a community that works through its own internal conflicts in order to become a holy body that can wrestle together against those powers. This inner process is my focus today, the communal work that helps build us into a people who labor together for justice and peace in the way of Christ. Within this community, again, we may be squeamish about the word enemy, and I'm not suggesting we start using it all the time to describe each other, playing up our conflicts and nourishing our animosities. But the truth is that within the church, as within families and other friendships, we will have differences. We will have oppositions. We will be low-key enemies at points. When we don't tell the truth about this reality, sometimes our hurts and our tensions come out sideways. Churches are notorious for this. So I'm suggesting that our very first step is honesty. We will disagree. We will hurt each other. This isn't the end of the story. In this sermon today, I can claim no moral high ground. I claim Jesus. I claim his gospel of peace and the restoration of all creation. I seek to speak in the sway of the spirit who comforts and guides our hearts. And my task is to bring before us a series of practices, of disciplines, the nitty gritty habits that build us into individuals and communities of prophetic witness to the extraordinary goodness of the good news in truly difficult times. What does it look like to cultivate a personal and communal way of being in the world that is honest about conflict, fiercely committed to justice, and appropriately humble in the way of a servant savior? I'll organize these practices into three categories. The first category I'll call preparatory disciplines. These are habits we can cultivate to prepare us to address relational differences and difficulties in our household of faith. The second category I'll call strategies in the moment. These are steps we can take when we're actively in dialogue to be present and to process well. And finally, the third category I'll call follow-up habits. These are disciplines that we can exercise after difficult conversations to grow as people of reconciliation. So category one, the preparatory disciplines. The very first habit I'd like to suggest to help us build beloved community is a habit of honest self-examination and curiosity about other people. Instead of papering over the surface of my feelings and interactions, this means getting quiet and still and curious and thinking through my relationships. Whom do I find difficult and why? Who sets me on edge and why? Again, the point here isn't to amplify conflict, but to be a little bit more self-aware about interpersonal dynamics. 
it might be useful to write these down in a safe place because this kind of processing, it takes time. Sometimes these conflicts aren't, they're not subtle at all. Sometimes we get into shouting matches. Sometimes we find ourselves in obvious factions, pro-vax and anti-vax, NDP and Sask party, sleep training and attachment parenting, eco-vegans and cattle farmers. If we ever think these are purely modern problems, I love the dramatic reimagining of Romans in the book Romans Disarmed, which reminds us that the early church's dietary conflicts uh, were that we read about in the New Testament were really deep-seated heartfelt convictions, and they had to work very hard to work through these together. This work of navigating differences has been the work of the church since Jesus formed the church. But even when the conflict is clear-cut and public, there's usually more going on. For example, my household is gratefully vaccinated, both my kids and my husband and myself. We live with a number of chronic diseases that make some of us especially vulnerable to illness, and so we're pandemic cautious and we support public safety measures. At the same time, I have dear, dear friends who are outspokenly anti-vaccine and anti-precaution in general. One of these friends, a social media influencer, would strike some folks as almost a little bit off the deep end. But I know more of her story. She's had a life of bizarre and very real medical problems that doctors have not taken seriously, some of which seem to have started around the time of her own childhood vaccines. The system has never been able to provide an explanation for her afflictions, much less relief. Knowing this story, I see that she has unanswered concerns and she's looking for a framework that helps explain them and protect her family. There is no way for us to even begin to have a conversation about our different perspectives if I don't get curious about my friend's outlook and experiences. Cultivating this kind of gentle, humble curiosity about our differences, including curiosity about my own positions and assumptions and wounds, is a practice that takes a lot of effort, but I think it's a place to begin. If I can wonder about myself and others in all of our complexity and nuance and keep coming back to the idea that we are all as complicated as each other, we all have our reasons and motivations and we all have our longings and our fears, I deepen my sense of our full humanity, which changes my orientation towards our conflicts. I'll add the caution that this kind of curiosity and self-examination is more risky when there are serious power imbalances. When we've been deeply wounded or even abused by another, this kind of reflection is probably best exercised with a counselor or at least a very, very trustworthy friend. There are risks to our honesty and I want us to honor those risks. The second preparatory discipline I'll suggest is a direct response to Jesus' teaching in Matthew. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. There are lots of ways to pray for enemies. I think God can handle our honesty and is unlikely to stop causing the sun to rise on the evil just because we ask for it. But the specific kind of prayer I'd like to recommend for conflicts within our family of faith is loving kindness prayer. 
This specific version comes from Andy Kolber's book, Try Softer. In a quiet place, we dwell with whatever time and resources we have on the following four requests. May this person experience Christ's love. May this person experience Christ's peace. May this person experience Christ's presence. And may this person experience Christ's compassion. It helps to go very slow and quiet and imagine the person in your mind. Let yourself picture what this would look like. I often imagine a gentle glow in their heart and surrounding them. Some folks imagine the person of Jesus approaching the imagined figure. Teachers of this kind of loving kindness prayer often suggest that we practice it from a place of safety outwards, following Jesus' call to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. So we pray for ourselves. May I experience Christ's love. May I experience Christ's peace. May I experience Christ's presence. May I experience Christ's compassion. The change that can happen in our own hearts as we dwell on these longings and on this belovedness is part of the picture of being people of peace together. Because how can I believe in God's transformative love for another if I can't believe it for myself? The next step is to pray this for people close and dear to us, extending the circle. And then we pray for the people whom we find difficult, even people who have hurt us. This is a holy and difficult prayer. It's not a prayer about changing their mind. It's not a prayer of righteous anger. And again, there are times for these prayers for us to raise our anguish and our fists to the sky and to shout, how long, Lord? Why do the wicked prosper? But when we're ready for it, I do believe this practice of loving kindness prayer changes things in us and in those we pray for and in the world. I keep it in my little prayer journal, along with a color-coded list of people I'm committed to praying for each day. I find it easiest to pray for those I love dearly. I find it harder to pray for myself. And I find it transformative to pray for people who have hurt me. For a hypothetical example, a close family member who didn't just block me, but unfriended me on social media during the last U.S. presidential election. Imagining this person filled with the fullness of Christ's love, I soften towards them. I know that we are unlikely to find full resolution or agreement about our differences, but this daily practice of remembering God's unfathomable love for this person has utterly transformed my attitude about them. Praying this way orients me toward a reality in which Jesus is alive, in which the Spirit is breathing among us, in which the realest real and the truest true is the love of God. And this is a foundation that can change everything. The second category of practice is practices for the moment of conflict or discussion. Getting curious and meditating on God's love for our low-key enemies is transformative, but it doesn't dissolve most conflicts, and we shouldn't expect it to. 
Within the family of faith, we still have to do the hard work of discernment and discussion. For those moments, whether we've planned them or whether they crop up in a hallway, here are two suggestions of practices that can help us discuss our difference as well. The first practice I'll suggest is naming common commitments, common values, and shared boundaries. Again, this is a particularly useful practice for conversations where there aren't big power imbalances. I'm thinking here of a, of a more level playing field. What can we lay as a groundwork of shared life? Here are some examples. We commit to seeking Jesus together. We are committed to the good of our community. We are committed to staying in relationship even if we continue to disagree. Explicitly naming these shared values can offer a kind of container for our processing together. So even as we struggle together, we bump up against these edges that remind us that although sometimes we express our shared values in completely different and even opposing ways, they bind us together. This is a practice I've learned a lot about from our mutual friends at MCC, and so I'm sure some of them could offer more insight into these communication styles for conflict transformation. We can also name certain parameters and boundaries. For example, we reject the use of ultimatums. We reject personal attack. We seek to avoid contempt we will avoid power plays. We can draft these commitments together. And while some of them seem obvious in the heat of the conflict, they are not always easy. It helps to write them out, again, to explicitly name and decide to share them and to practice at them. It also helps to remember that power plays aren't always overt. For example, I know of a beautiful church in the States divided over pandemic protocols. In closed door meetings, the people, representatives of a group that were against masking, some of whom were very powerful families in the church with very powerful checkbooks, um, they threatened to leave and split the church if masking rules were implemented. And so the leaders have felt bound to follow the status quo of no masks. There was no public discussion, there was no debate, there were no guidelines announced. On the surface, there was no conflict. But as a result, families with significant medical vulnerabilities have felt compelled not to attend worship services. This is a reminder that sometimes our efforts to avoid overt conflict play into power dynamics. Naming our community's commitment to, to these containers of shared values and shared boundaries around power can be really painful work, but it surfaces some of our unspoken dynamics and leads us to a place of fuller equity in Christ in our conflicts. The second in-the-moment practice I'll suggest is around self-regulation. We are not just ideas and theologies, but bodies made in God's image, in the overflow of God's love. In Western cultures, and sometimes especially in Christian cultures, some of us have been brought up to dissociate pretty fully from our suspicious flesh. I certainly was. But ignoring our embodiment in conflict is ignoring a source of insight and connection. Hilary McBride's book, The Wisdom of Your Body, is a really lovely entry point if you're wanting to learn more about this dynamic. So much could be said, but for now, I'll suggest just a few concrete ideas. 
First off, in difficult conversations, it helps to have both feet planted on the floor, connecting your body to the stability of the earth. It helps to notice your own bodily sensations, to take a moment. Is your heart racing? Is your skin clammy? Are you clenching your jaw? Can you take some quiet breaths? Can you lower your shoulders and drop your tongue to the bottom of your mouth? I heard a neuroscientist say recently, you can't stay mad at someone with your tongue on the bottom of your mouth. Can you put your hand on your chest or your belly and remind yourself that you're safe? Attending to our bodies in these really simple but practical ways during conflict can calm our nervous systems and help us stay engaged, keeping us from kind of tuning out or blowing up which short circuits the discussion process. And I think the more we do it, the easier it becomes. It's a practice and it's one worth trying in our daily lives. We are our meat and our muscles and bones and blood are part of what bring, uh, what we bring to discernment and relationships. Redeeming the divide between our minds and our bodies can help us redeem some of the divides between each other as we become more adept at self-regulating and remaining present to the work of conversation. The third category is practice after difficult conversations. And once we've had these difficult conversations, the work isn't over. I'll focus on just two practices very quickly wrapping up. The first is to build a church culture of trust by choosing not to gossip. Gossiping is not the same thing as talking with trusted friends because we are relational and we need to process healthily. But after a difficult discussion, our goal should not be to retrench into factions and reestablish our polarized groups by playing up an us versus them dynamic. Our goal should be to honestly unpack what happened with just one or maybe a handful of wise conversation partners and this goal, again, is to build a church culture of trust so we can all trust each other to have hard conversations without having our perspectives later mocked or spread around or used against us or distorted through a grown-up game of telephone. Again, I'm not talking about keeping secrets about abuse or injustice. That's never a healthy practice. But disciplining ourselves not to use the conflict as storytelling material to make ourselves feel better at the expense of somebody else. The second practice after a difficult conversation is a return to the preparatory practice of honest self-reflection, which leads to the possibility of apologizing when necessary and forgiving when necessary. I don't know about you, but I have not witnessed very many apologies and forgiveness in conflicts within churches. Maybe you're all pros and you have a sparklingly healthy church culture. I hope that's the case. But I think many of us find apologizing and forgiving very difficult. The irony, of course, is that Jesus teaches so clearly and frequently on the power of forgiveness. Developing a culture, again, a culture of trust in which we can admit to each other when we have been wrong whether about our ideas or in our conduct toward each other, in big and I think perhaps even more crucially small ways, is, I think, one of the most powerful ways we can embody the love of the Spirit within the bonds of Christ. 
Apology and forgiveness doesn't mean papering over reality or leaving aside accountability. And in fact, I can apologize for my tone or my attitude without letting go of my kind of position. It's not a zero-sum game. But in genuine, regular encounters of apology and forgiveness, something changes in a marriage, in a family, in a friendship, and in a church. When we risk apologizing and forgiving, we confirm the ongoing nature of our discernment together, our commitment to continued relationship over time and discussion and debate. We build tiny difficult step by tiny difficult step a habit of being together that normalizes healthy disagreement, human imperfection, and grace. When we give and receive forgiveness, we embody the good news. We show the world that there is another way. There's so so much more we could talk about today, and I imagine you all have so many ideas as well. I hope you'll share those with each other over time. I hope you will try to cultivate these and other habits of being church together. And I want you to know from this little room in Arendelle, Saskatchewan, Saskatoon, how deeply certain I am of God's immense love for you and pleasure in you and of the good work that God has prepared for you to do in our community and of the faithfulness of God to see it through. May you, Lakeview Church, experience Christ's love. May you experience Christ's peace. May you experience Christ's presence. May you experience Christ's compassion. And may you share all of these with each other and with the world. Amen.